0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We're going to begin today by turning to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we are slowly working our way through this book, listening patiently to what the Holy Spirit might have to say to us. And we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to the end of the chapter to verse 16. So let's roll up our sleeves and open up the Word of God together. It's on the screen here, also very helpful if you have your Bible with you so that you can follow along as we meditate on this passage. Let's listen to the word of God together. Paul writes, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I've said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet, now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. This is the Word of God. And if you're familiar at all with this chapter, you probably know something about this distinction that Paul makes here between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. But I think it would be a mistake just to extract some teaching about repentance from this text and kind of toss away the rest of the chapter. You know, perhaps like you, I receive a lot of packages at USA to Georgia from Amazon and other vendors from America, and I pick up my package, and I've got these boxes and envelopes, but fortunately, nearby, there is a big blue garbage bin, and I stop there before I toil up the hill to go home, and I rip open the boxes, I tear open the tape, I pull out the crumpled brown paper, the packing peanuts, the... Um, bubble wrap, I tear open the the additional box or clamshell that's inside, and I extract my comb or mechanical pencil or whatever tiny item it is that I've borrowed. And we can make the same mistake with Scripture, I think, in trying to grab kind of this essential piece about my personal relationship with God and throw out all this stuff that Paul goes on about some ancient 2,000-year-old conflict with some church far away that seems frankly quite irrelevant to us. And you might even feel a little annoyed that Scripture is filled with so much irrelevant detail. I mean, surely the essence of all this could be compressed to a thin booklet with, you know, 100, 150 little proverbs or maxims, and the rest of it doesn't seem all that important. I think that would be a mistake, because it's no accident that so much of Scripture and so much of the teaching of the Bible is deeply enmeshed in human relationships. When Jesus became man, he didn't just deliver some sayings from the mountain. He had friendships with Peter and James and John and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Jesus is always incarnate in human relationships, and so is the grace of God. We can't just snip out the grace and throw away the relationships. Although there is some important teaching in this passage about true repentance, and we will spend a few minutes on that, I think what this passage is really about is friendship, true Christian friendship. I don't know about you as you've been listening to these messages, but as I've been spending time in this letter, I'm struck again and again by Paul's deep relationships with real people in this church. And he's not delivering this letter uh, as a dry theological treatise from his study or some edict from central headquarters. Paul is appealing to these dear brothers and sisters through tears on the basis of friendship. Unfortunately to moderns, at least those of us in the West, friendship is a fast, disappearing reality. But to the ancients, to the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans and the philosophers, friendship was one of the very highest possible human experiences. In fact, of all the different possible loves that human beings could have for each other, parental love or romantic love, they put friendship at the very pinnacle of human relationships. The philosopher Aristotle beautifully described friendship as one soul in two bodies. An experience sadly lacking today, I think. One of my favorite books of C.S. Lewis is his slim volume called The Four Loves. That's the book that I return to again and again where he talks about these four different loves that Scripture describes. And in this chapter about friendship, He describes the essence of friendship as being this realization. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. See, for Lewis, friendship is about being travelers on the same quest. People hungering for the same shared vision. And whereas lovers stand face to face, gazing in rapture into each other's eyes, Friends are always shoulder to shoulder traveling in the same direction than themselves. And that's why Lewis says people that desperately wish, all I want is to have a friend, they can never get one because real friendship is about something beyond the friendship. It's about something greater than the two or the three or the four of you. Friendship is about a goal that you're passionate about. And I think the higher the goal, the deeper the possibilities for friendship. Yeah, you can have a friendship based on a shared passion for model trains or a shared interest in Danish television crime dramas, but that friendship can only go so far, yeah? And that's why I think true Christian friendship has the possibility of being the highest, the deepest friendship at all because it is about sharing the same passion for ultimate truth, goodness, and beauty, which we find in the face of God himself. And Paul had all sorts of, I mean, really odd friendships, didn't he? Think about it. Here's this guy. He's a very strict, very conservative Jew extremely highly educated. He has the equivalent of multiple PhDs. And yet he's hanging out with these working class Greeks from a pagan background, sitting around a table in their apartment, having deep fellowship in Christ. And only in Christ. And this friendship is based not on a common background or a set of common hobbies or interests. This friendship between Paul and the Corinthians Is based on a common love for Christ, a shared experience of the Spirit, and a mutual participation in the mission of God. So as we look at this chapter today, I want us to meditate on some things that we can learn about Christian friendship from Paul and the Corinthians. And I want to offer you today 10 theses, 10 commandments possibly, 10 suggestions at least, perhaps I should be a little more modest about what Paul and the Corinthians can teach us about friendship. First one is this. Number one, friendship asks for an open heart. Make room for us in your hearts, Paul, appeals to the Corinthians. There can be no friendship unless you're willing to enlarge your private selfish, cramped little heart to take in other people. And that requires a choice, not just to be on my own as a safe, self-contained little unit, but to invite other people into my heart and my deepest inner being. And of course, that means right from the beginning that friendship requires work, doesn't it? Lazy people, are rarely gifted with deeply meaningful friendships. Friendships must be cultivated, and tended, and repaired. Mike put me onto an old book by Hugh Black, some old guy he wrote in 1896, and he wrote this in his book on friendship. We have few friendships because we are not willing to pay the price of friendship. We have the opportunities, but we do not make use of them. Most men make friends easily enough, few keep them. They do not give the subject the care and thought and trouble that it requires and deserves. If you long for real friendship, it's going to require some work on your part to creak open your rusty, tightly locked little heart and invite people in. Commandment slash suggestion number two. Friendship is based on integrity. Paul says in verse two, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. Paul is not using the Corinthians for his own advantage. He's not using these relationships as some kind of leverage in order to get something else because true friendship is not utilitarian we don't treat other people as tools or as means to an end we value the person for who they are themselves that's why friendship is a lot more than you know networking to get ahead in your career or to make business contacts those are not necessarily devious or wrong those kind of relationships. But if it's just an acquaintanceship that's about personal advantage, that is far from genuine friendship. Friendship means loving the other person for their own sake. And perhaps you know from experience, as soon as you realize, oh, the other person is just using me to get something, that is the death of friendship. Friendship has this integrity about it. Number three, friendship binds fates together. You have such a place in our hearts, Paul writes in verse three, that we would live or die with you. Paul is not writing this letter from a place of cool detachment where it doesn't really matter to him much one way or the other what happens to the Corinthians. Hey, I'll be fine out here in Macedonia. Paul's fate is deeply linked with that of these brothers and sisters. They're chained together. When the Corinthians weep, Paul weeps. And when the Corinthians rejoice, Paul rejoices. One soul in two bodies. The translation, the NIV that I shared from you, unfortunately smooths out this verse a little too much in saying that we would live or die with you. And if you have a more literal translation, you'll see that Paul is more literally saying, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Not live and die, as the NIV tries to make it more natural in English. We first die together, and then we live together. Now, that's a rather odd order, to put these phrases in, isn't it? Dying together and then living together. But if, if you've been attending to what Paul is saying in this letter, describing himself as, Behold, we die and yet we live. You remember that for Paul, the Christian life is all about participation in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Cross-shaped, resurrection-powered life and ministry. And now Paul's saying, this isn't just about me and Jesus having this private, intense spiritual experience together. This is all of us, the whole body of Christ, as brothers and sisters, as real, true, deep friends, sharing in the death and the life of Jesus together. And this is why genuine Christian friendship Transcends all other kinds of friendship because it's about shared participation in Christ. And He is there with us in that relationship. And in fact, the whole friendship is mediated through Christ. It all goes through Jesus, and we see the other person not just as they are in themselves irritating and frustrating and disappointing and sinful as they are, we see our friend as someone for whom Christ died and as someone with whom Christ rose from the dead. And that transforms everything about friendship. Our fates are bound together because we are all linked and fused and united with Jesus. Number four, friendship comes with an emotional cost. In Paul's case, with a very high emotional cost. Here's Paul in Macedonia. He presumably had to leave Corinth with the last ship before winter closed the shipping lanes. He's up there far away in the north, And he's having a hard time. He says earlier in the letter that while he was in Macedonia, he despaired of life itself. He's dealing with troubles and conflict from the outside, whether that's persecution or conflicts within that church or attacks from Satan. He's undergoing spiritual warfare. And inside, Paul's heart is filled with fear and trepidation. He's deeply anxious. In fact, he says, we had no rest. I'm lying there in bed, and I close my eyes, and sleep doesn't come because my mind is racing away, and I'm deeply anxious about what's going to happen with this church. I've poured so much of my heart into these people, so many years of my life, I've held nothing back, I've chained myself to this church, and things seem to be going down the drain back there. And Paul had taken a bold step. He'd, he'd written a tearful letter of appeal to the Corinthians trying to mend this strange relationship. And he sent Titus as his delegate down to Corinth. And now weeks have gone by and months have gone by and Titus has not appeared. And Paul perhaps is thinking to himself, this relationship was already hanging by a thread. Have I now severed that thread by being too direct? Paul paid a high emotional cost for his friendships. And often, pastors and leaders are advised, don't become friends with the people in your congregation. Maintain a careful distance so you don't get too involved, so you can keep your own heart protected. Paul would have none of that kind of advice. He risks everything in pouring out his heart to these people, and therefore Paul makes himself deeply vulnerable to being hurt by them. And as a true friend of this church, Paul feels the pain of separation. Not just physical separation, but the pain of a rupture in the relationship. And man, I'm, I'm so struck in this letter by Paul's incredible relational resilience. He is so tenacious with this friendship. And when a lesser man or woman would have abandoned the whole connection with this church as completely fruitless and a source of so much pain and negativity, Paul refuses to let go but holds on to this friendship with all his strength. Paul is willing to pay the emotional cost of friendship. as part of his participation in the suffering and death of Jesus. Knowing that Christ was willing to pay the ultimate cost, Paul can't just let people go and leave them to their own fate. He has to stick with them. Number five, friendship demands plain speech. I have spoken to you with great frankness, Paul says in verse 4, a word that comes up multiple times in this letter. Frank speech, candid conversation is the test of real friendship. The ability to not hold back, but to open yourself up completely to someone And simply share your heart without having to carefully weigh every word and fear that somehow you're going to deeply offend or put this person off. And the ancients believed that this frankness of speech was the ultimate goal of friendship. There's a guy named Philodemus. He died in 35 B.C. and he wrote a treatise called On Frank Speech. He wrote this essay on the importance of frank speech and friendship, and he said, a wise man will employ frankness toward his friends. Although many fine things result from friendship, there is nothing so grand as having one to whom one will say what is in one's heart, and who will listen when one speaks. And I wonder, by that test, how many of us have even a single real friendship where we're not just goofing around or joking about things or on a very surface level, but we're able to open ourselves up and share the pain, the struggles, the difficulties, even the conflicts between us with complete honesty and know the other person is willing to listen with care and respect to us. And if you have a single such friendship in your life, hold on to that with all you have because it is extremely valuable. Of course, not many friendships can survive plain speech because that demands real trust on both sides. But in friendship, truth must be spoken. And at times, very painful truth must be spoken. Especially when you see your friend veering off in an unhealthy direction, getting caught up in some sin. And if you're too nice to confront them, you're not being a true friend at all. You're simply being a coward unwilling to speak the truth in love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, Proverbs tells us. And there are times when friendship requires us to pull out the knife and do a little surgery. And Paul loved the Corinthians enough that he wouldn't just say, smooth things to them and ruffle their feathers and be a nice guy and only give them pleasant words, Paul cared enough about his friends in Corinth that he was willing to do the very painful and unpleasant duty of speaking directly to them and confronting them about sin in their community. And he sat down and he wrote a very painful, a very personal, and I'm sure a very prayerful letter to them, soaked in tears, pointing out things that could be ignored no longer. And for the sake of the friendship, Paul was willing to risk the friendship. As a servant of Christ, and as someone who desired the highest good of the people he loved. He was willing to use some plain and some rough speech. But right after that, we need to move on to point six, which is this, that friendship finds no pleasure in inflicting pain. There's a certain kind of person who enjoys speaking the brutally honest truth. Because they enjoy being brutal, and it makes them feel superior to others. Paul is not like this. He's not like that. I don't say this to condemn you, he says in verse 3. Yeah, I've got to say some really hard things to you, and I've got to be very direct about some sin in your life, but it's not for your condemnation. I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm not just here to unleash my personal frustrations with you, and Paul had been deeply hurt in his relationship with this church, and it might have been tempting just to blow these guys away, to punish them and destroy them and take vengeance on them for what they had inflicted on him. Paul does not do that. I'm sure we've all felt the temptation, and even given into the temptation, to heartless chastisement. And if you're a parent especially, you know what it's like to unleash your personal frustrations on your child, not to build them up and help them grow, but simply because you've been annoyed or hurt or frustrated. And that is a deeply selfish way to treat relationships. Paul's tearful letter had caused pain. It had made his friends in Corinth grieve. And it hurt Paul to inflict that pain. But he had to do it. Just like a physician must sometimes inflict pain in order to heal the patient, whether it's sticking in a needle or prescribing chemotherapy to get rid of the cancer, sometimes pain must be Inflicted. But, of course, only a very sadistic doctor would enjoy hurting his patients. Paul's prescribing the minimum amount of pain necessary for the restoration of these friends of his. And we really have to guard ourselves, and some of us in particular, against the pleasure of rebuking people. The ministry of condemnation, of correction, of taking people down a few levels. And it feels good, and it, be- it can become addictive, but it's not the way of Jesus. Paul rebukes, but he does not condemn. He doesn't want to shame the Corinthians. He doesn't want to drive them to despair. He must inflict pain, but he does that with regret, and he only does what's necessary for the restoration of their relationship with God and with himself. These first six points we've talked about. Paul as a friend to the Corinthians. But of course, friendship can never survive If it's all on one friend, even the perfect friend, real friendship has to be mutual. Both parties have to be committed. Paul had the difficult task of correction, of giving correction. The Corinthians had the even more difficult task of receiving correction. Number seven, friendship means receiving correction. There are very few people who enjoy being told their faults. And most of us are very reluctant for people to hold the mirror up to ourselves and tell us the frank truth about our behavior. Which is why appeals for repentance so often go badly. Because people get angry and defensive, and they feel like they're under attack, and they want to lash back, or perhaps they receive the correction with an attitude of humility, but underneath they're seething with resentment, and the friendship is effectively over. And I wonder how easy you are to correct be a good question to ask your husband or your wife or your children or your friends, how easy am I to correct? Do I have the kind of disposition where people feel safe in bringing things to my attention? Or have I carefully constructed walls and fences around myself so people feel deeply uncomfortable in bringing those things to me? course, some of us respond to correction with anger, but there's a more subtle strategy for resisting correction, and that is with a kind of false humility, where I'm preempting your correction by constantly talking about how bad I feel about myself and how low I am and how much I'm struggling, and then your friend feels like if they were to say something, that would just push you over the edge. It's a kind of self-deprecation that I think is designed to forestall criticism. I think both those responses of anger and self-deprecation both come from a deep insecurity. And as Christians, we ought to have a deep safety and security in Christ. A deep sense that I'm covered by the blood of Jesus My sins are forgiven. I'm welcomed before God purely on the basis of God's grace. And if we are those kind of mature, deeply rooted people in Christ, we ought to be able to receive the criticism of others. There's a very helpful article called The Cross and Criticism by Alfred Poirier. And he says there are two things, two ways the cross helps you receive criticism in a healthy way. When someone, whether a friend with good intentions, Or an enemy with bad intentions says something true or false about you. Here are two things the cross teaches you. Number one, I'm actually a lot more sinful than this person says I am. Because the cross really does tell us the brutal truth about ourselves, that we're lost and condemned before God, that we are rebels against his holiness, that we're deeply stained and tainted people. And that the only way for our sin to be dealt with was for the Lamb of God Himself to be defiled and executed on the cross. So, actually, the gospel begins by telling me some very humbling truths about myself. And if I've already taken that in, standing at the foot of the cross, seeing Christ dying for me, then whatever you say about me is very small compared with what God says about me. And of course, the cross secondly tells us that I am deeply accepted for Christ's sake. Yes, I am sinful, but my sin has been paid for. It is finished. Christ took it all upon himself and bore it on the tree so that I can be completely pardoned completely forgiven, completely washed clean, and completely accepted by God. And therefore, when my sin is brought to my attention, even though I need to take it seriously, it doesn't have to destroy me. I can face the truth about myself because Jesus has already faced the truth about myself. And now I am secure through him before God and before other people. And when we have a deep realization of the power of the cross and the grace of God in our own lives, we can build strong friendships where hard truths can be spoken. But if our grip on grace is very weak, and we're looking to ourselves to justify our own existence then we're going to be shattered and destroyed when someone says something devastating about ourselves. Friendship means receiving correction, and we can only receive correction if we're grounded in Christ. Number eight, friendship requires personal change. Yeah, here's this relationship that is frayed, that is disrupted. The Corinthians have received this very direct letter from Paul, And they've been grieved. They're filled with sorrow. And Paul wants to clarify, this is a godly sorrow, literally sorrow according to God. Sorrow from God and to God, the kind of repentance that God intended for their life. Not like worldly grief, which is a kind of shallow remorse filled with bitterness and self-pity, like King Saul and 1 Samuel that we studied last year. Upset and remorseful because he's facing the consequences of his own sin without any real grief of his separation from God. And this kind of worldly grief is not the conviction of the Holy Spirit but the condemnation of the evil evil one that paralyzes us and keeps us absorbed in our self and our self-loathing and our self-hatred and our regrets about what we're missing out on ourselves. Genuine sorrow, genuine conviction from the Holy Spirit is about true remorse for having grieved God and having hurt other people and genuine resolve to change. It's painful, but with faith, we can see these experiences as a chance to make contact with God's grace in a deeper and more profound way in our hearts and to deal with things that I know displease God and are getting in the way of full enjoyment of His presence, things that will destroy me. And in the end, despite the pain by the Holy Spirit, I will feel grateful for correction, knowing that my Heavenly Father disciplines those whom He loves. Worldly sorrow keeps us from God in shame and condemnation. Godly sorrow drives us to God in repentance and resolve. Sinclair Ferguson says repentance means the whole of life returning to the purposes of God. And true friends help each other repent because we're helping each other go wholeheartedly to the purposes of God. True repentance means resolving to change, and it means actually changing. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. John the Baptist preached There was a British politician in the 1960s named John Profumo, and he was the Minister, he was the Secretary of War in the British Cabinet. And he got caught in a sex scandal with a 19 year old model in 1961, and it was one of the first big sex scandals in the UK. And of course, he had to resign his position, it brought down the government. But he had connections, he had power, he had influence, and like so many other politicians, he could have maneuvered himself back into power or on the board of directors of some major company. John Perfumo did something quite different. He spent the next 50 years volunteering at a homeless shelter in East London. He began by washing up the dishes. He became their chief fundraiser. He was very quiet about his whole experience in power. He just faithfully served the poor as a sign of his repentance. And that's a striking story because it is so rare when we see not just politicians, but Christian leaders hiring their public relations firms, and six months after they've resigned, they're suddenly back in their ministry, having restored themselves And it's deeply scandalous. The Corinthians didn't have that kind of shallow, self-centered repentance. Paul can list no less than seven evidences that their repentance is genuine. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves! what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Not that they were innocent to begin with, they had real sins to repent of and be sorry for, but their full-hearted response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit had fully repaired the situation. Number nine, friendship rejoices in the evidence of God's grace. can only imagine what it must have been like for Paul after months of sleepless anxiety, wondering perhaps if Titus had been murdered on the road, not hearing from the Corinthian church, when finally Titus burst through the door of Paul's apartment with a huge smile on his face. And Titus reported the result of Paul's tearful letter, a response that Paul must have prayed for fervently, but hardly have dared hope for. And I can imagine there was a spontaneous worship service breaking out as Paul and Titus gave praise to God for what was so evidently a work of the Holy Spirit in this church. This was Paul's desire all along, not to crush them, not to bring vengeance for how he'd been hurt, but deep reconciliation, deep gospel reconciliation. It is amazing this chapter is filled with such positive emotions, the joy, the comfort the relief. Notice in here how Paul joyfully affirms and builds up his friends. He doesn't rub it in their faces. He doesn't say, okay, you've got, you're on probation now. We'll see if I'm ready to trust you again. Paul is totally for these people, and he rejoices in God's grace in their lives. I mean, couldn't we all use that kind of friend? someone who is very attentive to the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in your life, and it's easy for us to despair and get discouraged and feel like we've made so little growth and have had so little progress, and then to have a friend to sit you down and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, let me point out seven evidences of God's grace in your life. Let me hold up a mirror to you and show you that the Holy Spirit has been powerfully at work in your life. And man, when someone encourages you, not just a vague general encouragement, but with real clarity and and deep insight into your heart, man, when that happens to me all too rarely, I feel like I can go for months on that kind of encouragement. What a gift to have that kind of friend. What a gift to be that kind of friend. That's why Paul says in verse 12, You know what the ultimate aim of my letter? It's not really about settling who's in the right and who's in the wrong. It's so that rather before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Paul wants the Corinthians to realize something about themselves, something good about themselves. And in the presence of God, to have this wonderful truth about ourselves reflected back to us that the Holy Spirit is working a miracle of change in our own hearts. That's why, number 10, friendship relies on the power of God. We need faith in the power of God's grace in our relationships, in our friendships. Because we will come to situations that are far beyond human retrieval, that all our delicacy and diplomacy and carefully... Reviewed emails cannot fix, but they are not beyond the power of God to fix. And the Spirit can always soften hard hearts and change unrepentant lives, which is what had happened in this situation. You know, Paul boasts in the Corinthians, but he's really boasting in God's work among the Corinthians. These brothers and sisters are God's new creation. They've been made alive through Jesus, and the Spirit is moving powerfully among them. And Paul loved nothing more than to go to other churches, to show up in Philippi or Ephesus or Antioch, and stand up and share the testimony of what God was doing in this amazing church back in Corinth, to lead people in worship and thanksgiving and praise at the grace of God. And so when Paul closes this chapter by saying, I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you, he's not being naive. He knows the Corinthians are capable of disappointing him, of frustrating him, of deeply hurting him. Paul knows there's a lot of work yet to do. But Paul's confidence in the Corinthians is really confidence that God is at work in them. And that the God who began a good work in Corinth, somehow or other, God is going to bring it to completion. This chapter invites us to reflect on our own relationships and our own friendships, if we have them. We may have invested in people, opened our hearts to them. We've invited a measure of hurt and pain. Uncomfortable conversations, perhaps even sleepless nights and anxiety like Paul. But we do so trusting there's something more at work than just two friends. God is at work in each other's lives. And we look ultimately not to each other, but to the power of God's grace to sustain our friendships. as we reflect on Paul and the Corinthians and this rich, deep, complex, troubled, yes, but grace-filled friendship, we need to ask ourselves, are we cultivating these kind of friendships in our own lives? Are we hard at work forging deep ties between our brothers and sisters to help us on our journey to the heavenly city, or are we just kind of drifting along, guarding our privacy, enjoying superficial relationships, acquaintances, never going deep, basically self-contained and self-sufficient people? What a shame that would be to live life that way, to cut ourselves off from friendships, that would do so much to enrich our lives, that could be such a huge means of grace to help you grow in Christ. I think Paul, by the Spirit, would exhort us to do the hard work of cultivating meaningful friendships in our lives where we can open our hearts, where we can speak frankly and be honest about ourselves and our struggles and encourage each other in our walk with God. Perhaps it's time to do an inventory of your relationships. And if you're completely lacking in these kind of friendships, you are at risk of wandering away from God, quietly drifting away from Him, with no one who knows you enough to bring you back to the Lord. You know, in this chapter, we see Titus as Paul's envoy. Titus represents Paul, and with great skill and with great delicacy and with great passion, Titus is the man, humanly speaking, responsible for bringing the Corinthians back to their relationship with Paul. But Paul is an envoy as well. He is an ambassador of Christ. And this is ultimately, there's something greater even than Paul's own relationship with this church, because Paul represents the friendship of Jesus. The one who does not call us servants, but friends. And Paul is a faint picture of Christ, the true friend, who cares deeply about us, who holds nothing back in wanting us to thrive as human beings, who's willing to pay the full cost in every way to win us over who has bound his fate to us to die together and to live together. And Christ speaks the faithful words of a friend to address the sin that would destroy you, not to condemn you, not to bring shame or despair or depression, but to restore you to relationship with God. Therefore, all Christian friendship is participation in a greater, a deeper, a truer, a higher friendship with Christ Himself. Where two or three are gathered in my name, even to correct each other, even to speak hard truths, Christ is there in the midst of us. We're about to eat a meal together, because that's what friends do. We sit down and we eat together. And we're doing this with Christ himself hosting us around his table. All our friendships are linked through him. This is not a meal of rebuke, of condemnation, of feeling terrible about yourself. It's a sign of faith and repentance, but it's about confidence in Christ and in his welcome. So, let me pray. Then we're going to worship, and then we're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you desire to be friends with us, that you have given us your son to remove all obstacles to open-hearted relationship with yourself. You know what selfish and shallow people we can all be, and yet you have graced us with the opportunity for real friendship with other people in our lives. And we pray together that by your spirit, you would bind us more closely, not just to you, but to each other, to die together and to live together, to share our common life in Christ as friends and as family. And Lord, we need a deep confidence in your grace. We need a deep rootedness in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So that we can face the truth about ourselves and about each other, and yet, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. Do this by your Spirit, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org.